Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Mindful Recovery. This is the podcast dedicated to helping you recover from trauma and addictions, one breath at a time. Hey, here we are again after a long hiatus. It turns out that building a business is a lot more difficult than I thought and takes a little more time than I had expected, so I had to put the podcast on the back burner for a while. We are back and ready to rock. A few announcements about where we're going at Life Recovery Consulting. We have completed the building of our trauma center in Richmond, Missouri, a little rural area in northwest Missouri. We are dedicated to the treatment of trauma, addictions, and autism, and I would like this podcast to focus on that trauma aspect because I see addictions and autism as kind of outcroppings of these things. That's right, autism is fundamentally a trauma experience, not that it is caused by trauma, but that The environment and the way the individual experiences that environment and later in middle school and high school, the social exclusion and bullying become trauma events in that person's life and they shape the brain in very much the same way. That's another episode. I want to welcome you back to Mindful Recovery. We have some exciting things coming up, some interviews with some really amazing authors, who one of whom I am quite sure you will recognize the name of, uh, another who is up and coming, has her own publishing house, and if you don't know her, you really should. I'm going to have interviews with professionals who treat trauma and interviews with survivors of their own trauma. We'll talk about how they manage to regulate and get through that space. So I want to welcome you back today's episode, I think what we're going to talk about really is a little bit about the nature of trauma and how that plays out in the brain to get us jump-started, what some of the complications can be. So in this episode, I want to talk a lot about how trauma plays out in the body. Um, If you go back to episode one, Go to mindfulrecoverypodcast.com, look up episode one. If you listen to that, that's going to explain how the emotional brain works, especially with regards to addiction, PTSD, things like that, how, how the brain reacts and we end up with anxiety and stress and the need to numb out. But today I really want to talk about um, some of the deeper neuroscience that goes on and how we develop and especially how that affects our ability to connect and attach in the world because in the next episode of this podcast, we're going to be talking to Johan Hari, who is an author that came out with his latest book called Lost Connections. And it's all about depression and to some extent even mental illness and how that's related to not being connected in the world, which I see as an increasing problem often. And that through connection, We do find healing because all of the neuroscience out there indicates that the brain really is wired for connection, that it functions best. Anxiety chemicals are at their lowest. Things like oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine are at their highest when we are connected with others. I think this is one of the reasons that 12-step programs are so effective in addictions recovery because as we're getting off of those drugs that we were using to numb out, 
we are finding connection with others who have had the same struggles. And that really begins to feed the brain in a way that allows us to survive things like the cravings and the trauma coming up that we haven't dealt with and things like this. So today's episode might be brief and it might be a little geeky and neurosciencey, but stick with me here. And if you really like the geek and neuroscience parts, most of what I'm going to say is, is going to rely on people like Bessel van der Kolk and Alan Shore, which is S-C-H-O-R-E. And I highly recommend that you look up Alan Shore on YouTube and watch a lot of his uh, videos where he talks about, through this organization called Psych Alive, he talks about how the developing brain is affected by trauma and neglect because neglect over time becomes a form of trauma. So that takes us to our first topic, which is, what is trauma? We usually think of trauma as these big events like a a car wreck or someone in in combat at war, you know, the Vietnam veteran with PTSD is the big image, or a child who has been brutalized in their lives, either sexually or physically abused. These are the big T traumas, though. What we also know is that there are little T traumas. Things like every day being in an environment where my parents are yelling at each other. Every day being assaulted verbally and told that I'm worthless. Being bullied in school constantly becomes a trauma on the brain. Right? These are the little T drip, drip, drip traumas that affect the brain in much the same way that the big T traumas do. In fact, the research shows that we begin to have that problem with the emotional brain that we talk about in episode one, where I end up with things like an overactive, larger, denser amygdala, an underdeveloped prefrontal region, which is the part of the brain that is responsible for thinking about, you know, making rational decisions, and an underdeveloped corpus, which is the middle of the brain between my right and left hemispheres, which is all about communication, and that interferes then with the storing of memory properly and being able to think correctly and forces a higher reliance on the midbrain, the emotional part of the brain, which is that limbic system, the fight or flight system, right? So I want to talk a little about that fight or flight system that gets engaged when there is trauma. One of the things that happens when I'm in this drip, drip, drip environment, I remember speaking with someone who said I could always tell when my father came home by his footsteps, how drunk he was, and whether or not I needed to hide my sister under the bed. Now imagine that kind of existence as a 9, 10, 12-year-old child. Every night, you're listening 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, kids shouldn't even be up that late, but your anxiety won't let you sleep. So you're listening for the footsteps of your father coming in the door so that you know whether or not it's safe to go to sleep or you need to hide your little sister under the bed so that you can distract him and take the beatings that might be coming yourself. This has an effect on the brain. It primes us to view the world always as a potential danger and keeps us in that high alert state. So I'm talking about the autonomic system. The autonomic system of your body, of your brain, consists of two things primarily. Your sympathetic nervous system, which gets triggered and runs into fight or flight. So my adrenaline 
like increases, cortisol starts to increase, my heart rate goes up, I breathe rapid and shallow, I start to sweat, my muscles tense, my senses become hyper-focused, I'm ready to pick up a stick or run away. Or alternatively, if I can't do these things, freeze becomes the option. And that's what I call possum mode, right? We, we think of possums playing dead. They're not really playing dead. They become so frightened, they freeze, they pass out. And that's your sympathetic nervous system engaging. Your parasympathetic system is responsible for turning that off, helping you calm down. Now imagine, if you will, that you're in a near car accident. Your sympathetic nervous system engages. Your breathing gets rapid and shallow. Your heart starts to race. You're terrified. You can't believe this guy just cut you off. But it was a near accident, so no harm. You pull over in the nearest parking lot, and you start to breathe, and you start to tell yourself, wow, that was a close one. And you feel yourself start to relax. The energy drains out of your body your muscles loosen again, and all of a sudden you might be very, very tired. That's your parasympathetic system kicking in. It is responsible for resolving all of that cortisol and adrenaline in your body because those chemicals long-term are really, really bad for you. They cause things like arthritis, joint and bone problems, muscle problems, fibromyalgia, Crohn's disease, heart disease. All these things are related to those too high levels of cortisol and adrenaline in the body over long periods of time. That's how your autonomic system should work. Now let's go back to the little boy who has to hide his sister under the bed every other night. His system is stuck on high. And he's constantly listening, constantly aware of his environment. So places like Target, on a busy day, become unbearable for him because it's too much sensory input. There's a reason that all of trauma patients that I work with, and this includes me, we sit with our backs to the wall in a restaurant. We do that because if we can see everything that's in front of us, we can protect ourselves. We are in that barely heightened kind of vigilant state, right? Now take that state times 10 and make it a constant thing, and that's what this child is living with. His sympathetic system is at a low hum all of the time. The cortisol in his system is at a low hum all of the time. And he is at a greatly increased risk in adulthood for things like addiction and heart disease, fibromyalgia, Crohn's disease, arthritis. Many of these problems can be related back to those effects on the body long-term of being in that hypervigilant state. In fact, we know in some individuals, they come out of the womb in this state because mom was very anxious. And so we're beginning to find in the study of neurodevelopmental trauma that when this child develops in the womb, if mom is super anxious, then that cortisol level is high and it can even damage the genetics responsible for turning on the parasympathetic system. So I don't want to worry you too much, but this kind of stuff fascinates me. Um, so we have already this child born into a system 
with a lessened ability to control that system or regulate himself. Who then, if the system continues to be violent, and this is where the study of ACEs comes in, adverse childhood experiences, and I want you to Google that one. I'm not going to say a lot about it, but essentially there are 10 factors that are involved, and if you Google ACEs uh, score or ACEs assessment, you'll find that all over out there. And it's things like, were you raised in a home where your mother was beaten frequently or threatened with being beaten frequently? Were you beaten frequently? Were you molested? Were you assaulted? Were you constantly yelled at? Was the home aggressive or violent? Were you raised in a neighborhood where there was constant violence? Did members of your family go to jail? Was there a divorce? Did one of your parents leave? These are all kind of the ACEs scores. There are 10 of them. And what we know is that if you have more than four of those, your risk of these things is greatly increased. The risk of addiction, of heart disease, of these other issues. Because that trauma, we talk about this in the emotional brain, in that episode one, so I'm not going to go into it greatly, but that trauma cannot be stored appropriately by the brain once the limbic region turns on, and so it ends up being stored in the tissues of the body through something called the fascia, which is this kind of enveloping tissue around your organs and your muscles that is there as a protective factor, but is very, very responsive to threat. So responsive that sometimes it can react more quickly than your brain does. So I have a slide in one of my presentations that says, listen to your body, it's smarter than you are. You feel that tension rise up because there's danger. This is why we say things like, listen to your gut, it's always right. So I want to go back to that little boy who has to be constantly vigilant, constantly listening to his father come in. And I want you to understand very clearly how what is called hypervigilance develops in him. There's another thing that happens, though, and this is in really severe cases of trauma. And in severe cases of emotional neglect or complete neglect, we see this happen. Often we see this in children with reactive attachment disorder. And that is my needs are not met early on. And one of the things I have to be able to do when I'm a baby is learn to regulate that autonomic nervous system. And I do that because I get upset because I'm wet or I've pooped and it's uncomfortable or I'm hungry and it's uncomfortable or some other thing has happened. I've I've kicked my toe on the crib or whatever and I begin to yell and cry because that's the only way I have to communicate that anything is wrong with me. And if my mother is in tune with me, she will hear that and she will come to me. And she will pick me up and she will say, oh, you poor thing. What have you done? Are you wet? And she'll check me. Are you hungry? I just fed you. Oh, I see you've stubbed your toe, right? And she'll hold me close to her and I will feel her heart rate and how it is calm and regulated. And I will feel her breath going in and out and how it is calm and regulated. And this is what we call attunement because my autonomic nervous system begins to respond to hers, I begin to calm down. I become attuned to that. I realize that her heart rate is not accelerated. Her breathing is not rapid and shallow. And she thinks then that everything is okay. And if mama thinks everything is okay, it must be okay. I can calm down. 
Now, I don't want to, I keep saying mama. I want it to be very clear that when I say mama, you can insert the term primary caregiver there because daddy is exactly the same other than what I talk about when the baby's in utero and the anxiety that can cause problems there. Of course, daddy can't give birth, so that's not an issue there. But daddy can be this attunement. Daddy can be this regulating factor in my world, too. So I don't want to I don't want to get all Freudian and blame Mama for everything. We're not looking to do that, right? This is about primary caregivers. This is about someone being in my life who can help me to regulate and learn to regulate myself in that space. Now I want you to imagine a moment, an orphanage in Eastern Europe with two hundred cribs. And I want you to imagine only two caregivers for those 200 cribs. And baby cries. No one comes. I'm wet. I've been wet for hours. I'm starting to get a rash. It's really uncomfortable. No one comes. Baby's hungry. It cries. No one comes. Baby stubs his toe on the crib he cries, no one comes. How long do you think it is before the baby learns that crying is non-productive? No one is coming. This is how we end up with what's called hypovigilance. I don't respond to input anymore. I don't respond to the stimulus of my hungry stomach or my wet pants or my painful toe. I stop crying. How eerie would it be if you walked into a room with 200 cribs and it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop? And yet what I am describing is a very real scenario in one orphanage in Eastern Europe. This would have been the 1990s. Right after the fall of Wall, when poverty rates were exceptional. Children were being abandoned simply because they couldn't be taken care of. And the orphanages were underfunded and understaffed. The nursing staff, as it was described to me, cares greatly about these kids. They're loving, they're wonderful people, but there are only two of them for 200 cribs. And so we have a room full of children who develop what is called reactive attachment disorder. I am not going to keep going back to a dry well looking for water. I am not going to keep crying if my needs won't be met. And so this is called hypovigilance. And in that state, I never learn how to develop a system, that autonomic system, that is self-regulating. There's no one there to teach me. And so I go from this hypovigilant state where I'm under-responsive to everything to an angry and furious hypervigilant state. And there is little or no in-between for me. As children, these individuals are said to have reactive attachment disorder. They no longer trust, even when they are adopted and brought home with someone who loves them, they have learned that no one's going to meet my needs on a very, very deep body-brain 
level. And so they do not trust the caregivers that are there. The people who adopt them may be very loving, may be very caring, but they do not bond. Now, there are ways to overcome this, and this is what part of this podcast is about. I mean, podcast in general, all the episodes are about teaching emotional regulation through mindfulness. And this is one of the major ways that I think we can make progress with things like RAD. But untreated, it can lead to antisocial personality disorder, which used to be referred to as sociopathy or psychopathy, right? So these are the people that Bernie Madoff is a great example, right? I don't know much about his childhood, but I do know that he was a sociopath. He had no qualms about destroying people's lives if it meant he was going to get richer. This was that inability to connect with others empathically, compassionately. And it begins almost always with this inability to regulate. And rather than suffer the pain of that, several options become possible. I can develop a narcissistic personality where everything I do is correct and right and I'm always better than you. And that's the little lie I tell myself so that I don't have to face my own painful shortcomings. I can become a sociopath like Bernie Madoff or John Wayne Gacy. Not all sociopaths, interestingly, end up being murderers. A small percentage of them do. The rest find ways to manipulate and get what they want, but they are still unconcerned with the needs of other. There is no empathy. These things come out of this inability to regulate, inability to emotionally hold space. So how do we get past that? I want to suggest here a documentary called Paper Tigers because it's fantastic and it's all about that. It's about a school in Walla Walla, Washington that was developed exclusively for these children with high ACEs scores who are at risk. These are the kids that are early on in middle school involved in drugs, sexually active, risky behaviors, never wanting to listen to what anybody says to them. Um, They are emotionally shut down in one manner. They are hypervigilant. They are uber-sensitive to threat, always willing to fight. And in the other, they are under-responsive. They are shut down, almost Brad-like, in their inability to attach to others. The school was developed around the idea that one person, one teacher, could make a connection with one student that would change all of that. And connection really does begin to change all of that. Look at the work of Bruce Perry. There was a fantastic interview on 60 Minutes with Oprah and Bruce Perry um, last week about this attachment and how being that stable space for that child, that connection that is safe, can change all of this damaged brain, can begin to regulate just like mother did When baby was a child, just like she could have, we begin to regulate their autonomic nervous systems by standing in the face of their rage and saying, I get it, you're hurt, it's going to be okay, I'm here. Look at my breathing, I'm not scared, I'm not excited, right? Feel my heart, I'm not frightened. This 
documentary, Paper Tigers, is all about that. I highly recommend it. One warning, I would not watch it with less than one full box of Kleenex. I've seen it three times. I can't get through it without bawling my head off because it's that amazing. These people are making an amazing difference. I'm going to give you one or two examples here. There's a teacher standing in front of the classroom in one scene, and he's explaining to them what aces are, and the bell rings, and they're all shoving stuff in their bags, and they're getting ready to leave the classroom, and he looks up and says, hey, guys, I love you, and he means it. How many schools do we know that let teachers say things like that to students? I love you, and he means it. I remember when I used to volunteer with a program called Kairos, which was a prison ministry, and we just went in, and it wasn't about converting anyone. It was just about showing them that it was possible to be a broken human being and still know that you're worthy. Fundamentally, that's what it was about. But the most profound, impacting thing about that weekend inside with these guys in a maximum security facility was hearing them at the end of that weekend say, I thought this was all BS. I was just here for the free food and the diversion from the boredom. And then I became convinced that these guys meant it when they looked me in the eye and said, I love you. And I had never heard another man say that to me. It was impactful. It was connection, right? So in another scene... They, these two amazing teachers take this kid who doesn't really have great supports to go to Washington University and tour the campus and, you know, apply for admission. And he is accepted. And the day after he gets the acceptance letter, he freaks out and he texts his teacher, F you, I could have spent all my time just being high and ignoring all this. You know, I can't do this anyway. Blah, 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 just goes off. You're a stupid effing teacher, blah, 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 right? Now, what's the response of the average American teacher? Not that I'm ragging on teachers, I'm not. They have really hard work. Most of them do amazing jobs. But often the response is, you can't talk to a teacher like that. And school systems today, the response to that behavior is, you are going to be suspended. It's a punishment-based system. We're starting to change that. There are some fantastic ways that we are starting to change that, and I'm very excited about that. But in general, what was this teacher's response? I hear you, man. You're hurting. You're scared. I get that. I love you. Just know that I'll be here. Wow. What a difference, and what a difference it made. By the end of that film, you see that this kid has not only come back to school, but he graduated and he's enrolled at that university and majoring in, guess what? Education. Even as I talk about it, I start to get emotional here. Because this is a kid who would have been given up on and thrown away. And I don't know what became of him years later after the documentary was finished. But I know that he had a chance he wouldn't have had in that space because someone took the time to connect with him and to regulate. So I don't want to leave this podcast today without a challenge to you, a direct challenge. Are you allowing yourself to connect? 
are you taking that chance? Or does it become so frightening that I begin to panic and I intentionally do something to screw up my relationship with my wife, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my significant other? Do I intentionally do something I know will push them away? Because I can manage that pain. I can't manage the pain of rejection. I can't feel like that child who cried and no one came again. Are you that connection for someone who needs it? That's my challenge this week. I want you to look honestly at connection in your life and how that's playing out and reach out to someone who might need it. Because next week, I'm going to have Johan Hari on. Um, And we had an amazing hour-long late-night chat. It was very late for him. It was like 9 o'clock in the evening after a long day for him. So thank you, Johan Hari, for coming on at all. Um, And it was really an awesome conversation. Um, Two people kind of geeking out for an hour on this idea of connection and what it means. And that's what his whole book is about, Lost Connections. So you'll hear more about that next week. This week, I want you to start thinking about connection. Was it damaged in your life? Have you reclaimed it? Do you want to start? Because that's why we're here. We want to start. I want to encourage you to, if you haven't started a mindfulness practice, to get into that, to start that mindfulness practice. That's a great way to get going. If you're having difficulty getting started, get on YouTube, download any number of free apps that you can get out there and just get started. Or you can always contact us. You can contact me by email at robert at liferecoveryconsulting.org or you can just go to liferecoveryconsulting.com and reach out to us and maybe we can coach you through some of those spaces online. Um, You know, we have access to telehealth now so we can begin doing some of that with you. Do reach out to us though. We can hook you up with a therapist in your area if you're having difficulty And, and we would love to be able to help you get started If you're having struggles in this constantly being hyper or hypovigilant area, we really want to help you get started in learning how to regulate and connect with those around you so that you can begin living your absolute fullest life. And so with the sound of the music, you know we've come to the end of another week's episode of Mindful Recovery. I want to thank you for being here with me. Remember, Mindful Recovery is the podcast dedicated to helping you recover from your trauma and addictions, one breath at a time.